Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. It's well understood that schools help kids grow by teaching them academic skills and instructing them in academic subjects. You know, math, history, English, physics. But it's less well understood how schools might help students grow by enhancing their overall cognitive abilities, perhaps independently of particular academic subject matter. A new paper, Cognitive Endurance as Human Capital, sheds some light on this more elusive aspect of schooling. Drawing on an elaborate field experiment in schools in India, the paper shows that schools can enhance our cognitive endurance, which, in the author's own words, is our ability to sustain effortful mental activity over a continuous stretch of time. Cognitive endurance is important. It matters for doctors in surgery, taxi drivers on the road, students studying for tests, and any other task that benefits from sustained attention. And for those reasons, it's crucial for us to understand how schools can develop cognitive endurance for students, especially because some schools train this capacity much better than others. To discuss cognitive endurance as human capital, we invited two of the paper's authors, Christina Brown and Heather Schofield, onto the show today. Christina Brown is a development economist who will be joining the University of Chicago's Economics Department as an assistant professor in 2023. Heather Schofield is an economist at the University of Pennsylvania, where she's currently an assistant professor at the Perlman School of Medicine and the Wharton School. The paper's two other authors are Sapri Kaur and Gita Kingdon. Christina, Heather, welcome to the report card. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we're excited to be here. So the central construct, the main thing we're talking about in this paper, which is an ingenious paper, really interesting, and we'll link to it in the show notes because I want people to read it, but it all centers around cognitive endurance. That's not a term we throw around every day. So Christina, what is cognitive endurance? Yeah, so a more common expression might be sustained attention. So your ability to focus on something over an extended period of time. And as you mentioned, you know, this is something that we see as a skill that you need both in school, right? You need to be able to focus for a 60-minute lesson or pay attention during a 30-minute test, but also something that adults need in their work lives or maybe in their personal lives. And so really a fundamental cognitive process of just being able to focus on something for an extended period of time. That's all we're talking about here. And again, the ability to sustain performance over time, but it's different from, well, I can watch a television show or I can sit through a movie. It's something that's particularly with, what, cognitively taxing exercises? Is that right, Heather? Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly the sort of thing that we're talking about. And it, I think it is an important difference, something we'll probably come back to later in the conversation. It's the ability to think hard for a sustained period of time rather than just be kind of in a state of flow or drawn in. In the real world, what are the kinds of sorts of tasks that cognitive endurance might be better for, as opposed to something you might set up to measure it? What does it look like in the wild? So there's been a few papers that try to measure this or Think of settings where it's going to be important. So there's been a lot of work in the healthcare setting where they've shown that, for example, nurses and doctors and paramedics, a lot of times their job involves making difficult decisions, having to face tough problems, and they have long shifts that they're working over. And they see in general that later in their shift or later in their workday, 
they tend to make worse decisions. When they're faced with these tough calls, they tend to do a worse job as they get more cognitively fatigued as the day goes on. Another setting we see this is in the academic context. So even amongst you know, high stakes exams like the SATs or other words, we see that students perform you know, even for a given question, they're more likely to get that question wrong if it appears later in the test versus in the beginning of the test. So this is not an issue of whether they understand the concept, they knew how to solve this problem when it appeared at the beginning of the test. But by the end of the test, they're more likely to make mistakes, to make silly errors because their brain is, is worn out or they might not be able to kind of focus their attention on this cognitively challenging task an hour in. We've seen something like this in other studies. I'm thinking about some of these studies about judges sentencing. And you'll see that judicial sentences from the same judge in random cases is different, like right after lunch than it is at four o'clock. Is that the same kind of thing or might that be getting at something else? Are we talking about cognitive endurance there too, Heather? I think it's totally possible. In those wild settings, it's often harder to tell whether it's cognitive endurance or something else. So the judge's paper, for example, that you mentioned, you know, they also think a lot about the fact that you just ate lunch. So there's food, maybe it changed blood glucose or something like that. But I think the general idea is very much true, that we think that the judges are also trying to think hard for an extended period of time. And we would expect that their decision making would probably also change over time, even if you could control for these other things. All right. So in your paper, and it's important to just point out that you guys are not psychologists, you're economists, right? So you're trying to say, okay, well, there's this thing that is probably a product of the mind, maybe manipulable by, by schools or other activities. But you're looking into this phenomenon because it might have outcomes on later life. Can you just fill out what the outcomes of differential cognitive endurance sort of as maybe not an ability, but a strength that someone might have? Like what kind of outcomes do you expect that that could be manifested in? Christina? Yeah. So I think we think in a lot of the types of professions that we see nowadays, so in a lot of the professional sector, the jobs that we're expected to do are ones that you're doing cognitively challenging work. And typically these are ones where you're going to have long meetings or long periods of time where you're expected to perform. So we think this is going to be important in the labor market setting. There's also been some nice examples of outside of employment outcomes. There's this great paper that we cite that talks about how even when people are making voting decisions, if a particular ballot item appears later down on the ballot, people are more likely to basically choose the default to not put in the effort to kind of think about what choice they want to make on that question, on that particular ballot item. And so, you know, for political outcomes, this could be important. And one thing that we think we kind of highlight that's new that hasn't been shown is that we know that people have better or worse cognitive endurance. But we find that it does look like there are big differences in how much cognitive fatigue we see amongst low income versus higher income populations. And there could be tons and tons of reasons for that. But we wanted to basically highlight that this does look like an underlying skill that's different across the population. That's where we get to the title of the paper, right? Cognitive endurance as human capital. So one quick note to anybody who's designing ballots. You may want to randomize the order on those referenda at the end because whoever gets the defaults, you know, might get put over the top and you could use that for good or evil. But we'll let that sit aside for a little bit. All right. So you talk a good deal about these two things, PISA 
and Tim's. And those are some international assessments and I can go over them. But can you just, Heather, lay out what is Pisa and Tim's and why did you look at those assessments in particular to gauge cognitive endurance? Sure. So the Pisa and Tim's tests are both international achievement tests that students around the globe and in the U.S. will take on a regular basis. And they help people kind of benchmark the performance of countries over time and the learning that students have. But one very nice feature of those exams for us, or actually two very nice features, are that they aren't very time pressured. So people have plenty of time to finish, and most of them do with time to spare. And then the second is that they actually have block randomized question order. And what that does is it lets us basically look in those tests and ask if kids get a question early in the test versus late in the test, how much more likely are they to get it right? And so these tests are a really nice way for us to start to pick up on this idea of cognitive endurance in kind of a very natural setting. And to Christina's earlier point, to also look at differences in heterogeneity or kind of differences in that slope by the socioeconomic status of the kids involved. So, for example, internationally, we can look at very rich countries versus very poor countries, and we can ask, do the kids in rich countries decline more slowly over time than the kids in those poor countries? And that's exactly the patterns that we see. Okay, so let me repeat this back to make sure I understand it correctly. You've got these international tests, and we can compare within country and across countries. Okay, but the test questions aren't in the same order. So it's not like one booklet that everybody takes. So kid number one might get question A, B, C, and D to start out with, whereas kid two might get R, S, T, and kid three might get X, Y, Z. The order of the questions comes randomly. So then if you look about the probability of the later questions being done wrong, you can say, well, it's not the question. It's when they answered the question. Exactly. That's exactly the idea. And so some of these kids may have different academic abilities. And so at the outset, there may be a gap in their scores, but that gap might grow if one kid is losing their cognitive endurance and they might just get worse scores on the second half of the test. That's absolutely right. And in fact, those differences can be pretty meaningful. So for example, if you were to bring Black and Hispanic students to kind of the level of cognitive endurance that white students have in the U.S., it would close about 10% of the test score achievement gap between those two groups. So that slope itself is actually a pretty meaningful determinant of that overall gap. And so by that logic, if we just took the first half of the questions on these tests, we'd get a smaller achievement gap measurement, right? Absolutely. Exactly. And I think it speaks to the fact that we think schools, it's not just about training content or providing specific knowledge of, you know, how to do multiplication problems. It's also about the skills of how to work on a cognitively challenging task over time. And so this is this other fundamental thing that we think schools are providing for kids. Okay. So this is interesting. And, and you sort of show with these tests that cognitive endurance is a thing, that it makes differences between groups of students that we should pay attention to it. And then somehow you come up with an experiment. Christina, can you give us the thumbnail of the experiment you ran? Yeah. So this is an experiment that we did with six low-income private schools in India. And in this context, just to give some background, because we wanted to think about, you know, what is it that schools might do well in developing cognitive endurance? So if you look at the best schools in high-income countries, what they tend to do is they have students 
work on writing an essay in class or work in groups or pairs to work on a difficult math problem for 30 minutes straight. They have them, you know, practicing and trying these cognitively challenging tasks for 30 minutes or 40 minutes straight. And in these low-income schools in India, that's just not the case. The type of instruction that students are used to seeing is one where teachers are basically lecturing at them for most of the day, and they get very few opportunities to sit down by themselves and work through these problems for an extended period of time. So what our experiment did was basically try to introduce a little bit of these best practices that we see in higher income school settings into this low income setting. And this experiment was sort of set up so that we could make sure that the differences that you found were, well, real differences and not to something else. Heather, how did you set up the randomization? So the randomization was at the individual level. So the individual students each got broken down into the groups. And to provide just a little more detail on those groups, there were three groups. There were two sub-treatments and then a control group. And in the control group, the students just did their very normal study hall activities. So, you know, a teacher would write a few questions on the board, and then the kids would, you know, copy them into the notebook and kind of work on them, but generally kind of got distracted pretty easily. In the treatment arms, what we did was, as Christina was saying, try to provide new activities that we found to be much more kind of cognitively engaging versus extended periods of time. And so the way that we did that was to provide two tablet-based interventions, one which was geared around math practice, which is what we think good schools do. As Christina was saying, you just get kids to sit down and focus on some academic content for a while. And then the second was really designed to be kind of devoid of any of that academic content. So what it was, was these tablet-based games, which we just downloaded off the app store, but with a lot of thought about which games we took in particular. So we chose ones which didn't have any academic content, so no letters, no numbers. They weren't very gamified, and they basically forced the students, or forces too strong, they encouraged the students, they engaged the students to work for an extended period of time for, you know, 20 or 30 minutes, which is pretty long for most of these elementary school kids. So these would be things like tangrams or mazes or that sort of thing. And so pattern matching and stuff that kids could like or not, they were hard but they weren't sort of not like an arcade game, not at all like that, right? It was basically they had to grind with their brain for 20 minutes or so. That's right. And that was a very deliberate design choice, which I think goes back to the earlier part of the conversation that we weren't looking for things that were like animated and, you know, super fun and just draw you in in this kind of very visceral sense, but rather something where you had to kind of exert effort over time to maintain that engagement. And a lot of that came from just pre-testing in the schools as well as kind of thinking about the criteria that we wanted. All right, Christina, when we think about this, I'm hearing some of my listeners right now, 20 minutes, that's not going to do anything. How much time did these kids spend? What was the length of the treatment effect? Yeah, so we did this program for about six months with schools and they had their program classes about three days a week. So this is, you know, 20 minute elective periods that they're having three times a week over six months. So this is the kind of scope of the intervention. Whereas the control group, it's still these same 20 minute elective periods, but because it's much less engaging, they're not required to complete any of the material in these homeroom classes. They're getting about five minutes of focused practice as compared to the treatment group, which is about 20 minutes. All right. And one thing that I think is interesting that I'm just running this by you, you know, I think on education a lot. I'm an education scholar. So 
you have these two treatment groups. One is, well, you kids are going to do math. The other kid is, you guys are not going to do academic content. And I'm going to cheat a little bit on your results. But, you know, you find results on both arms. And the interesting thing about that is for schools, it seems like you may need to do some things different, but you don't have to introduce the tangrams period or some non-academic thing. In other words, we might be able to do what we're doing differently rather than do different things to improve students' cognitive endurance. Yeah, that's exactly what we wanted to test, right? Is it about what specific content you're practicing for an extended period of time or just about practicing, just getting your brain to engage in something challenging? As we did the experiment, we weren't sure how transferable this skill would be. And it's exciting to see that this is just, you know, maybe schools should continue to do the math version of this, that they do focus practice on math, but then at home, the kid can do focus practice on tangrams and do something on a different topic or in a different setting. All right. So I think we've pretty well set up the parameters of the experiment. Heather, what did you measure as outcomes and what'd you find? Well, we actually had a lot of different outcomes. We did that actually very much on purpose because one of the really fundamental ideas behind this intervention is that it is something that's supposed to change something that's a very basic cognitive process. And so it should show up in a lot of different areas. But we did actually categorize the outcomes in a few different bins, so let me describe those. The first set of outcomes that we got were really data on how kids did in school at the end of the year grades. And we did this not only for math, which you know showed up in the training, but also for things that were completely unrelated to what the kids were doing in either of the two arms for the treatments. So things like Hindi and English, which just didn't show up at all in either of the treatments. And so what that data was gonna give us then is kind of a sense of the overall impacts of this kind of focused cognitive activity on learning. And that could come through multiple channels. It could come through doing better on a test or it could come through paying more attention in the classroom and actually learning more. In addition to those end of the year grades, we also got a second category of evidence, which we're really trying to use to help us isolate this channel, trying to show that there was a change in cognitive endurance itself. And so to get at that, what we did was administer a set of our own experimental tests that again, have kind of a wide variety of different topics that I can describe in a moment, and some design features that really mirror what we were talking about earlier with Tim's and PISA. So we give kids plenty of time to finish the test, they're not hurried, and we randomize the question order. And that, again, is going to let us look at this kind of rate of decline in performance, this idea of cognitive endurance very directly. So we do those tests, which include a math test, again, for academic content, a Raven's matrices test, which is often viewed as an IQ test, and a listening test, which we chose because it's, again, very, very unrelated to anything else that's done and is an important skill to actually learning. And we use that same design on all three of those tests. And that then lets us look at this kind of idea of cognitive endurance very directly. Beyond those two main sets of outcomes, we also have another few sets of outcomes that are helping us, again, show this mechanism or this channel. So we do some very traditional tests from the cognitive psychology literature measuring sustained attention. And we also add some measures of attention in the classroom, which are rated by somebody who doesn't know what treatment status the kids have and just sits in the back and just uses measures from an ADHD teacher diagnostic rating test to see if the kids are paying attention. So a lot of outcomes. Give me the short form answer. How did the treatments work? Yeah. So across these different groups of outcomes, we see a few things. First, we see that being exposed to 
either the math version of the treatment or the kind of games and mazes version. We see effects on just student performance at the end of the year. So their math performance, as well as their language performance, their English and Hindi performance, even though those were, again, completely unrelated to the specific content that kids were practicing. We also see differences in their measures of cognitive endurance or sustained attention, again, for both versions of the treatment. So we see less decline in performance. So for example, on the listening test, we see that kids are less likely to get questions that appear later on the test wrong if they were in the treatment group relative to the control group. Similarly, we find on these kind of more traditional measures that psychologists use of sustained attention, we find better performance on those. And interestingly, we also see that kids are better able to focus during their regular classes. So when these outside observers measure, is the kid listening to the teacher's instructions? Are they looking around? Are they responding to what's happening in the classroom? We see that kids that were in the treatment classes are better able to focus on the lesson that's happening in the class. So let me just think about how this works, right? I mean, Basically, you do a cognitive endurance intervention for some kids, relatively low time dosage, but consistently over a long period. So there's a cumulative sort of impact. And then at the end, you see across randomized groups, differences in both cognitive endurance and in sort of academic performance and attention measured across a bunch of things. So when I just think about, well, how is this working? My thought is, Well, the treatment improves cognitive endurance, and cognitive endurance improves a lot of these other outcomes. Is that the kind of flow that makes sense to you, or can we not necessarily say that? Heather? Sure. So I think that is exactly the flow that we intend to study, and that's why we provide these measures of cognitive endurance to provide this very positive evidence that this channel is active and that it's very consistent with these other pieces of evidence. Like we can see kids actually paying more attention in the classroom, which we think are the channels that are going to lead kids to learn more. You know, I think it's hard for us to 100% say every little ounce of that classroom effect is due to just this channel. We can't say that there's nothing else that could have happened. We do rule out a lot of other channels, or we try to rule out a lot of other channels through a bunch of different tests for compounds. Like we look and see with a direct test where we add incentives. Is this all about motivation? Could it be about confidence? So we do try to look at some of these other channels and we don't find evidence for them. But, you know, I think we're always hesitant to say absolutely 100% of everything is coming from this one channel. We can just say that we do find evidence that's very consistent on a number of dimensions with the cognitive endurance channel happening both kind of in the testing domain and in the classroom for learning. And I know this isn't really fair, but I want to get your take on it. We always think, wow, the thing we're working on is super important, but it does sound like you've sort of pointed a spotlight on cognitive endurance. That's a pretty important part of schooling and and development that may get short shrift in the broader discussion. Christina, you know, you handicap it for me. How big a deal is this? Yeah. So I think one reason that there hasn't been much focus up till this point is that it's hard to measure. And so I think it's when you talk to teachers, this is something that people think is important. Kids' ability to pay attention during this whole day is important. It's just really hard to capture this. And so maybe that's part of the reason why skills like this or working memory or other cognitive skills 
that people have an intuition that are important, but haven't been a big policy focus for schools up till this point has been a measurement issue. But I agree with Heather's point, And I do want to provide some kind of, you know, taking a step back that, you know, this is one of the first papers that's speaking to this specific question of whether cognitive endurance is malleable, right? Whether this is a muscle that just can be developed through practice. And so anytime there's, you know, first evidence or early evidence on a question, I think we are really excited to see more work on this, but we don't want to say 100% that this is the most important thing that schools should be doing by any means. We think this is more a call to do more work in this area to better understand it. One other point to add there, I think, is that it seems like something that potentially, again, we don't have direct evidence on this, but potentially schools could sort of get double bang for their buck. You know, to your earlier point, it's something they're already doing in a lot of schools, right? We want kids to practice math. If we get them to practice math in a concerted way, and it not only improves their math skills, but it improves their cognitive endurance, that seems like you get kind of a win-win out of it. And so I think a lot of what we're hoping will come out of this is kind of more work to really understand what can be done in the classrooms that builds on already existing kind of structures and doesn't take away from them, but kind of gets this double bang for your buck by building this cognitive endurance element into it. Yeah, and it certainly speaks to sort of how you might do that. So you could see how a math teacher saying, well, we're going to do more sort of what we call drill and kill in the education world, right? Sort of wrote exercises may not engage the cognitive endurance in the same way that some deep and tough practice would. Well, we're going to get back to that in a minute. We have this part in the middle of our episodes where we take a little bit of a break, largely because of the limited cognitive endurance of our dear listeners. We call this grade it. It's pretty simple. I'm going to throw out some things that may or may not have to do with your work. Just give me a grade, A through F, and a brief explanation of why. Are you game? Sure. Sounds great. All right. Christina, I'm going to start with you. Frank Lloyd Wright's Roby House. Oh, A, but mostly because it's very close by. (laughs) This is right near your work, correct? It is. Yes, it is across the street. (laughs) And can you give us a quick description of it just for those who aren't familiar? Yeah. So, I mean, Frank Lloyd Wright is hugely influential architect. And if you think about a lot of the architecture that you see in the Midwest, it's coming from his vision. And so this house is like one of the perfect examples of the style of architecture that you see in a lot of the Midwestern United States. So it's it's a the archetype of that type of architecture and it's it's beautiful. Okay. Heather, the quality of the average student's sleep. Where are we talking? Where are the students located? America. B minus? I'm just guessing. Well I also work with MBAs. I would give them like a C. They're, they're out a lot. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it's, it's hard to say because it is very variable, but I would say probably lower than we would want it to be. Christina, advanced placement classes. Well, it depends on the setting, but I used to be an AP physics teacher back in the day before I went into research, and I had an incredible time teaching AP physics. I think it's an extremely useful class. So For AP Physics specifically, I am 100% A. Heather, school lunch schedules. Again, seems highly variable, but I'll I'll give it a B. (laughs) Um, I I think uh, designing them with some eye towards maintaining good nutrition through the day is very important, but it relates to a lot of other factors like when they start. 
Christina, this is a tough one to keep short. The length of standardized tests. Mm. So from our evidence, it seems like it's very important, the extent of breaks in those tests. So by length, I think what's going to be important is it's okay if you have a lot of data that you want to collect on this, but you need good sized breaks, chunking these up into shorter pieces. And if you're, as we see in our data, if you're doing 40 minute tests, know that the thing that you're measuring is not just whether they understand this content, but the child's level of cognitive endurance. Heather, India's public school system. There, there are some stellar schools in India, and there are some schools that could use quite a bit of work. So again, highly diverse. And just to put a point on this, you did your work in private schools in India, and there's a large private sector, especially low-cost private schools in India, which is some reflection of the nation's public school system. Does that all sound in keeping with your perspective? Yes. And I think just one, uh, maybe this is not the nature of this thing, so you can cut it if that's the case, but one thing that really relates kind of back to the discussion we were having earlier is this kind of how the schools are organizing their time. It's just crazy. You know, it's really interesting when you spend time in these schools in India, you walk into a classroom and the typical thing you hear is like one plus one is two, two plus two is four. They're just like chanting or, you know, there's one kid at the blackboard working and everyone else is just sitting there. And I think it's just, it makes it a very hard environment both to learn and to develop the skill. So on that dimension, complicated. (laughs) Christina, the U.S. public school system. Hmm. Another one with huge variation. So I worked in a public school that had incredible teachers that were, you know, devoting their lives to these students. It was in a low income area and just incredible educators. But I think there's a lot that we need to do to ensure that everyone has access to that type of high quality teaching because that is not currently the case. So that's great. But so far without a grade. Hmm. Yeah, to be determined. Okay, okay. Incomplete. Heather, 24-hour medical shifts. Oh, the evidence on this is mixed. I'm going to give it a a B. It actually is probably not as bad as it seems. So evidence suggests that there are real costs to handing off care. And so you're trading off basically people getting more tired versus the handoff costs. And so it's not clear which of those wins. But the cognitive endurance training that must come with them must be pretty deep, right? You would think so after that. Yeah, it's a long shift. Okay, B. Tests that require heavy amounts of studying. Hmm. I would actually generally give those an A (laughs) because I think studying is a good thing for cognitive endurance and a good thing for learning. But I think it depends what you mean by studying. So the quick caveat is if you mean basically memorizing random facts, I would give that an F. If you mean thinking hard for an extended period, I would give that an A. Gotcha. So you're really grading the studying there, right? Yes, I am. All right. That's a wrap for Grade It. Thanks for playing. Let's get a little bit back to your experiment. One thing that I wanted to ask, when we think about schools, I'm curious about what you all think about the production function of cognitive endurance. The big question here is, you have some serious evidence that suggests this is a thing to be dealt with. The question is, when and how? And I know that you probably don't have the work on that, but what's your working theory? When's the time to produce this and and what's the best means? 
our study is not trying to speak to this question, but my understanding of our study plus the literature suggests that kids are really the appropriate group for this training. So there's good evidence that their brains are much more flexible and more plastic. And, you know, we see these effects in our study. Conversely, there are kind of a lot of different cognitive training activities that you see among older adults, and those don't seem to show a lot of benefit. They tend to look at working memory or fluid intelligence or the like, which is a bit different than what we're studying. But I think the broader point is that it does seem like there is some bias towards improving these skills more when you're younger. Beyond that, I think we don't have a lot of good evidence yet, especially for cognitive endurance in particular, what exactly is the thing that causes that production, right? We chose things which we found in our environment seem to be very effective at getting kids to focus. But I think it's something we would love to see more research on is trying to figure out what are those things in other environments? Is it something that's consistent everywhere, like dynamic difficulty so that it really keeps kids on the edge of their seat? Or is it something that's very context specific, like it has to be a novel thing in their lives or something? But one thing that may speak to the production function, and you tell me if I'm wrong in this, is that we seem to see lower cognitive endurance among students who score lower on sort of the academic side, right? Like they score lower out of the gate and they drop off faster. So it could be that that's actually capturing part of the production function that's happened earlier. That is the lower performance is because they don't concentrate as long on taxing mental tasks. So that would seem to be in concert with your idea of earlier the better. Does that wash? Yeah, it does seem like it could be potentially a very virtuous cycle if you build these skills early on in kids, then they're better able to focus and then it continues on from there. So the other thing from our study too, the one piece of evidence we do see is that we don't see big differences in effects. We have first up through fifth graders that are a part of this experiment. And it's not just that the very youngest kids or the very oldest kids are impacted. We see effects across the board. So that is one encouraging piece that at least elementary school age might be a particularly good fit. But as Heather said, we don't have a sense of, you know, maybe it would have been even better to do this with preschool age students, for example, when their brains are even more malleable. We just don't have a sense of that piece of it yet. Hopefully more data can speak to this. Do you have any information on whether the results that you documented last you did the intervention during the school year. You kind of took your measures at the end of the school year. Is there any reason to believe that these would or would not fade out over a longer period? Yeah. So because of COVID, we weren't able to do long run follow-ups, but we did do one round of follow-ups basically four months after our intervention. It varied a little bit, but it was somewhere between kind of three, four or five months after we completed the program. And we saw similar effects even at that couple month mark. So it does suggest that at least it's not immediately when you remove the practice that you lose the ability completely. It does seem like there is some persistence there for sure. But we'd love to see other work to see, you know, does this continue on for a year or maybe even does it compound, as you were saying earlier, right? If you get better at focusing, does that allow you to then spend more time on your homework, which gives you more practice and so on? Heather, you all chose schools in India, partly because schools in India look a particular way. I mean, they operate in a particular way that made this possible. Most of the listeners here are thinking about American schools. And so the question that quickly comes is, well, would that translate? Would the same kind of systems translate in the same way to American schools? I understand, again, you don't have experimental evidence to bring to bear. 
But what's your mental model tell you? There's a little bit of data from Tim's that does speak to this question. So in the Tim's data, we also have information where they ask teachers, how do you spend your time? How much instructional time is spent on lecture versus having students work in groups or individually on academic content? And from that, we see that even within the U.S., schools that spend more time on independent focused practice for students have less cognitive decline over their TIMS tests. Now, that's not a well-identified study. By that, I mean, it could be that those schools that do that type of instruction also do lots of other things that help students have cognitive endurance. But that provides some suggestive evidence that even within the U.S., that cross variation in teaching pedagogy suggests that, you know, more focused time on independent practice could be helpful even in high income settings. And I think one thing that Christina is also hinting at there is that it might depend kind of what you're thinking of as the intervention. What we're thinking of as the intervention, since we have these two very different treatments that show very similar facts, is basically anything that gets you to focus for an extended period of time, you know, which for five to 11 year olds can be 20 or 30 minutes. And so, you know, I think if you're asking directly, do we think like we should just start wildly adopting tablets with this software everywhere? I think we'd, be, we'd probably say no to that. But if you're asking, do we have a mental model that basically if you can get kids to practice this skill, whether it be through the methods that we used or other methods that are already in place in schools, that it might translate, then I think the answer is yes. And a little intuition from the piloting of, you know, how we designed this or how we picked the particular games or the length of time. We basically were trying to target what is the length of time and what are the types of activities where kids will do this thing, but by the end of it, they seem like they're pretty cognitively fatigued, right? They're, they're really having a hard time by the end of that time staying focused. So that was the kind of length of time and the activity that we were targeting. We wanted to get them like right at the edge of their cognitive endurance muscle to a certain extent. So again, we're going to link to the paper and listeners. Read the paper. It's readable and interesting. But part of the reason that it's interesting is because you do this early stuff with Pisa and Tim's and then you do an experiment and then you don't stop there, but you move from India to Pakistan and you look at a wholly different aspect of this in Pakistan. Heather, why the shift and what were you able to show? Well, the shift, to be honest, was one of data convenience. <laughs> this is actually Christina's stellar data from her job market paper. And what we wanted to do was to be able to show that we see similar results in kind of a very natural environment to the one, you know, ours was experimental. We wanted something much more natural or kind of real world, for lack of a better term. And what the idea of that additional study was, was to say the broader question that we're asking is, is schooling able to produce this skill? And so if that's true, then kids who get more schooling should potentially have more of this skill, especially if they're in schools that kind of are doing a good job at producing it, that are getting kids to focus. And so in that natural experiment, what we do is we look at students who enrolled either a year earlier or a year later based on kind of an age cutoff for when you can enroll. So they're basically the same age, roughly speaking, but some of them have an extra year of schooling compared to others. And so then we can ask, do those kids who get that extra schooling, but are who are exactly the same age, have more cognitive endurance? And what we see in that study is exactly that they do, that kids who get more schooling do get more cognitive endurance, but that's only true in schools that have kind of the good pedagogy by the definitions that we've been using here, where we mean kind of this focused independent practice time. And that's all coded up using data from the classroom, looking at how teachers spend their time and how the schools operate. 
All right. So, Christina, you said that this is part of your job market paper. Let me repeat this because the early intervention on cognitive endurance hypothesis seems to get stronger here, right? If schooling contains good cognitive endurance practice, then a randomly assigned extra year of schooling increases cognitive endurance, but that difference is early on. It's not sort of at the end, right? I mean, some of these kids are the same age and they had an extra year of schooling that started earlier. So does this strengthen the early intervention might help cognitive endurance hypothesis? Potentially, yeah. So the thought experiment, right, is that you have a 10-year-old who was born on, you know, December 31st versus January 1st. And so one of them is in fourth grade versus one of them is in fifth grade. And they've gotten that additional year of schooling when they were younger. And so now you have these 10-year-olds, one that has an additional year of schooling by that point. And we see that the one that's now in fifth grade has less decline over the length of the test. And so, yeah, it suggests that certainly there's going to be some treatment effect that's coming from that early exposure of that first grade year. Though, I don't know if we can say that it's better to have more of that, for example, maybe more focused practice time in preschool relative to in third grade. We don't have a sense of that. So I can't resist an opportunity to bring your research onto a eminent public policy question. So for folks who favor universal pre-K in the United States, they might say, yeah, this shows cognitive endurance is going to get better if everybody has universal pre-K. What would your response be? Would you jump in full freight on that? Or are you a little bit measured in your response? What do you say, Christina? It depends what the alternative is, certainly. So in this context, if the student isn't in school, they're probably not going to be having much interaction with other caregivers in terms of getting support with an ideal caregiver, you're going to be providing that child with lots of support and opportunities to do challenging cognitive things for an extended period of time. If that's the counterfactual of what the child would be doing if they're not in pre-K, then, you know, maybe those things look equivalent. But if they're going to be at home and maybe, you know, not getting much interaction from a caregiver that pushes them in this cognitive way, then yeah, pre-K might be a really good option to get them to practice those types of skills. And then that would be helpful as long as the pre-K does some of the same sorts of training, right? I mean, that's the prerequisite for the difference across the counterfactual, correct? Exactly. Yeah. So there's going to be huge heterogeneity of what the child might be doing if they're not in pre-K, but also if they are in pre-K, we know that there's a lot of variety in the quality of these programs as well as what they focus on. And the other thing kind of to draw back on points you made earlier, we're showing that cognitive endurance and sustained attention is one really important aspect of cognitive ability, but there are lots of other ones that we also don't have a good understanding of and that preschools might, it might be even better for them to focus on, you know, relational skills or other socio-emotional skills or emotional regulation. Like those might be even more impactful in the long run for kids. And so- I don't know if cognitive endurance is necessarily more or less important, but I would say it probably is getting not as much attention as things like memorizing numbers and letters that tend to be the focus of a lot of what we think about as instruction in these early years. I think probably it would help to have more focus on the development of these more fundamental skills than, you know, memorizing academic content at this age. 
Fair enough. Okay, so we have a lot of school leaders and teachers in the audience. And so for them, I know you don't want to get out over your skis of what you can say, but in thinking about these results, Heather, what would you encourage them to consider? Should this make differences in homework, the way you use class time, assignments, testing? Yeah, I think our hope is that it will. The goal here, I think, is really to show that this is fundamental skill and an important one and one that generalizes extremely broadly and hence could have kind of very big impacts when you aggregate them up. And so to that extent, you know, I think we would advocate for people trying to think about how to integrate it into their classroom. But to Christina's earlier point, I think the main thing that we want to be careful of is we don't know exactly how to do that in all contexts yet and how not to crowd out other important things. You know, as economists, we're always thinking about on the one hand and on the other hand, and, and what, what is the opportunity cost? And so I think the more that teachers can think about how to integrate this skill into developing other skills simultaneously, like the examples that we gave with kind of you're learning math and cognitive endurance at the same time, those seem to be the highest returns areas, I, I would think. All right. Heather, Christina, it's a great paper. I hope more people read it. And thanks for coming on the report card to talk about it. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having us. It was fun. Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to our guests, Christina Brown and Heather Schofield. We'll include a link to Cognitive Endurance as Human Capital and some of the author's other work in the show notes. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download podcasts. And while you're there, take a moment to leave us a review so other people will find the show. Send us your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at ai.org. That's it for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus.